Every day, 34 people in their 20s and 30s are diagnosed with cancer. On the 7th of July 2015, I was one of the 34. On the 28th of August 2008, I was one of the 34. But in Series 2, we're going younger. We're teaming up with Teenage Cancer Trust to bring you seven new storytellers. As seven 13 to 24-year-olds are diagnosed every day. So, Series 2 focuses on them. These are the stories of what happens afterwards. This is Afterthoughts. The Teenage Years. Alice, here we are again. It has been a really long time. How long has it been since I saw you last? About 20 minutes. About 20 minutes since uh, we are doing a whole host of recording for Afterthoughts, the teenage years this week. Um, Absolutely smashing through them. Absolutely smashing through them. But um, give me the highlights to your life and that brief time that we didn't see each other. Any any highlights? I had an absolutely excellent lunch. Like, mm. oh, do you know what? Lunch is like my least favorite meal of the day because I often think it's just a bit crap. Yeah. And um, I was looking through the quick roasting tin. So you may have come across the green roasting tin or the roasting tin or the quick roasting tin. I was flicking through that last night and I saw a recipe for giant couscous halloumi with spinach, red onion and chickpeas. And I was like, get in my face so I bought all the ingredients on the way back from the gym and then I put them all together and cooked it before we did our first recording and then I ate it in between our first recording and second recording of the day and let me tell you I do not want to give the leftovers to my husband for him to have for his lunch tomorrow he doesn't need it you, you take it all for yourself right um what about you well <laughs> I mean, my word, did I hit the exciting, exciting moment of my day when um, I, uh, in in our little break, I uh, grated 600 grams of carrots because I'm making carrot soup after we finish this. And I was listening to Taylor Swift. So there you go. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice balance of middle-aged and your actual age, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Somewhere in between the two. But... Um, then, after our <laughs> food-based endeavours, we were joined by the fantastic Deborah. Yeah, all the way from Edinburgh. Um, and my word, have we had a great afternoon and heard some incredible stories. Yeah, I loved... Um, I can't, well, I can't wait for um, our audience, our listeners, to hear Deborah talk about um, cyber beam therapy. therapy. Beam, proton, proton beam. beam. Therapy. Great, you're yeah. listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't wait for our listeners to hear Deborah talking about proton beam therapy. Don't, don't um, think that we're, we're going to cut that. No, you, I got confused so between cyber knife and proton beam and just like combined them. But so um, it's fine. I loved um, I loved listening to that story and I can't wait for our audience to hear that. And I liked her description of how it works as well, because I never knew that. Fascinating stuff. And, and I mean... Deborah is is so brilliant at crafting a story and like taking us to these different places and introducing us to topics that like talking about surgeries and the traumas after surgeries and then also telling us about the kindness of strangers. I oh, mean, man. it's full to the brim. Can't wait also, for people to listen to it. Is it just me or do you want a mince pie? Oh, we're not at mince pie time yet. Why not? 
<laughs> two words. Two words. Why not? Um, anyway, here's Deborah. Hello and welcome to another episode of Afterthoughts. Hi, Alice. Hi, Toby. How are you doing? I am all right, thank you. And we are so excited today to welcome Deborah to <laughs> our podcast today. Hello, Deborah. Hello. It's great to be here. Um, Deborah, where are you zooming in from today? Edinburgh, cold Edinburgh in Scotland. Oh, yeah. I bet it is chilly up there. Oh, it's got a bite to it. The weather definitely does. Keeps you awake. <laughs> Brilliant. My grandma was from, she's a Londoner and I used to live, well, my family live in the north. And my grandma used to say it was two jumpers colder up north and three in Scotland. Yes, correct. <laughs> I'd say even four and a coat. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, we always like to kick off the uh, start of an episode uh, with uh, our quick fire questions, don't we, Alice? Yep, only they're not that quick fire, usually because I ask extra questions and get excited <laughs> about answers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, we, we hope that they're quick fire, but they never actually are. That's right. And I've just got my pages right, so I'm all ready to go. Alice, are you all ready to go? I am ready to go. Fabulous. Let's kick off. Um, Deborah, could you please give us the pronouns that you use? She, her. And who do people say that you look like? Oh, no. Um, let's see. No one really. Um, my boyfriend makes fun of me and says I look like the guy from Moana. Because <laughs> I've got big curly hair. <laughs> I love that. I mean, it sounds like he's just jealous of your curly hair. Yes, I certainly he's dickhead. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you could be any toy, what toy would you be? Hmm. Um, a brat stool doll because they're like Barbies, but cooler. Nice. I like that a lot. Yeah, they've got edge. They I don't do have they edge. Are. They're like, they're just like cool. They're like bad bitches, you know? Yeah. It's like brats. B-R-A-T-Z. Google it. Right. What? This is why we don't have a quickfire round because you do things (laughs) like this. So you're like Google right in the middle of the quickfire round. And then I quickly go, okay, all right. Brats dolls. Okay, here we go. Oh, there was a movie. Um, Yes, I can see. Oh, there's lots of them. You can get a selection for $3.99 used on... um, eBay if you want them. But I don't think I'd be buying used toys at the moment. No. Do you know, can I just tell you that, oh God, I know this is this is a uh, ruining the quick fire things. I saw the saddest sight yesterday. I was walking home and um, as I came around the corner, saw a collection of toys on the floor uh, outside somebody's mm. house. A Buzz Lightyear toy just lying on the floor. Did you Break bring it home up. with you? No, I, I had my bike actually. So I was like, I can't do it. I can't pick it up. It's one of the saddest <laughs> sights I've ever seen. Um, um, Deborah, what is your favourite biscuit? Um, oh my god, I really like biscuits. This is so hard. Oh, by the way, thank you for the biscuit. I'm oh yeah, you. you're welcome. <laughs> That's really good. Um, boring chocolate chip, always solid. Never had a bad chocolate chip. Fair. Too true. If you had a teleporter right now, where would you teleport to in the world? 
New Zealand or Hawaii. Oh, great. Um, what is your go-to dish to either eat or to cook? Very different for eating and cooking because my cooking <laughs> abilities are pretty awful. Um, to cook, noodles, solid, mm, vegetable noodles. To eat, ramen, always like ramen. That's the second ramen we've had of the day. Two ramens of the day. Um, and Good taste. Final <laughs> question, the big one. Cat or dog? Cat. No, that's cat. Cat. Oh, yes. Cat. Cat come back, cat come back on the cards. Um, thank you, cat. Oh, and also, Deborah, yeah. we would love to hear just um, a kind of one line summary of your um, cancer experience. Um, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor when I was 19, and I had a couple of surgeries and proton beam therapy. I'm so geeky for proton beam therapy, I'm very excited by that. So cool. Okay, so uh, Deborah, it's really great to have you here. And I am very excited to kick this off with um, our first section, Beyond a Diagnosis. We know that lots of people have their diagnosis story that they can roll out whenever they're asked on cue. It always is the same. And we're really interested in the stories that come after that diagnosis. So, Of course, um, obviously quite hard because so many cool moments after diagnosis. Um, but one that um, really stands out um, with how like ridiculously lovely it is, like it would be like from some kind of feel-good cancer film. Um, so I was on the neurological ward, neurosurgery, neuroscience. I think there's a difference. If a doctor's listening, they'll get mad at me, sorry. Um, in my bay, there were four ladies, very lovely, very funny. Um, the ones that were awake, great personalities. Um, and when I was treated, um, up here in Scotland, even better because Scottish people, I'm sorry, objectively the funniest people. Um, and it was just very quiet because um, a lot of people with um, you know neurological conditions, you know, don't do much. Sadly, um, a couple of people in a coma. Um, just I don't know. There was definitely a sense of friendship there among. The people that spoke because it was just so boring and nothing connects people like utter boredom um i think so they would just get talking it would be like in those in scenes from prison movies where you'd reach a point and someone goes so what are you in for what are you in for what are you in for um and um i got to know quite a bit about all the different conditions and stuff um and there would be some really awkward moments where they'd all be talking about their children at home or grandchildren and you're like, oh, I'm at university. Um, but no, it was really nice. And nurses are always really nice on neurological wards. Maybe it's just with all cancer patients. Um, yeah, but they're always just really nice. And um, my mom's a nurse and she's told me that a lot of um, neurological nurses can be almost as crazy as the patients, um, which was really nice. It was just, it wasn't um, decorated for Christmas, but there was still, you know, a really nice, sense of family and just niceness in general. Um, and I was feeling a bit low, a bit miserable, um, not really because of the diagnosis, but just like being like young and surrounded by a lot of older people. And I was saying to my mom, she'd visit me every day and it was November time and it, like the world had gone into Christmas mode, you know, like ridiculously like 
everywhere advertising. Um, and I was like, oh, I'd really like a mince pie. Can't wait to go to the Christmas markets, blah, 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 blah. Just going on and on and on. Um, and there was a lady opposite me whose husband would visit her every day. And he must have heard me, you know, going on to my mom. Um, because later on that day, um, after he'd like gone to the Pret downstairs, yeah, because the hospital I was in was so posh, they had a Pret. Um, he came over with a little brown paper bag and was like, oh, I think you'll like this. And he put it down and there was a little mince pie inside. And I almost started crying over a mince pie in the John Radcliffe neuroscience ward. Um, that was so lovely and that was so kind. And I think he recognized that I was like, obviously the youngest patient there and just felt a bit crap. Just wanted something to cheer me up. Um, Cause I couldn't go downstairs and get one myself. Cause I had a drain in my head that meant I like couldn't move much. First of all, it just made me feel really overwhelmed cause I'd already encountered so much niceness in the form of my neurosurgeons, the nurses and everything. So that was just like the amazing cherry on top of the cake of, oh my God, people are so nice, what the hell? Um, because I've, I've heard some cancer patients talk about how they experience a lot of false niceness. And um, I think it's called grief tourism, um, where people just wanna hop onto the like train and see what's going on and then leave. But I didn't really experience that. I just, I was just like astounded by how nice people are. Um, and if I saw him, if I saw him now, I'd say, yeah, just give him a big thank you. I'd like to give him a hug, but I probably shouldn't because of COVID. Yeah, love him, great guy. <laughs> I love that and for those of you who are listening uh Deborah just blew a little kiss to the air uh, for, that, yes. for that nice moment. I hope it reaches him wherever he is in the south of England so next on afterthoughts we are diving into the those around us section um those around us is looking at stories that focus on the fact that cancer may happen directly to one person but it influences so many more and so this is an opportunity to highlight those around us who go through those stories with us so deborah over to you for those around us yeah um um i'd quite like to speak about my parents um who were just so funny like um a lot of people say how their parents were supportive which my parents obviously were but they also just like made me laugh every day which was actually quite annoying because I had stitched at the back of my neck um which hurt quite a bit um first one my stepdad probably the reason I stayed sane 100 um he would just let me talk so much crap to him we just listened to my like steroid rants um that's something that so many cancer patients are familiar with the steroid mania um I remember on the 14th of November was my first big brain surgery it was a big boy 10 hour one and I was absolutely terrified um the night before as you'd be before brain surgery um <laughs> my stepdad was just sitting by my bedside and he went oh, you know it could be worse how could it be worse like you, you you could be a patient in a no you could be a prisoner somewhere in America waiting to die by lethal injection the next day 
<laughs> and my mom was like, John, how can you say that? Um, and he always just said little things like that that made me laugh. Um, he was he was amazing. And then my mom, she was she would just like rally me to get my shit together um, in hospital. Like I I would just lie there and the nurse would be like, do you want to go for a shower? And I just couldn't be bothered, you know, because when you're ill, you can't really be bothered. And she would, when it was visiting time, she'd come in and say, get up, shower now. She'd help me, she'd carry all my soap and stuff. Like, I don't want to, I feel gross. I don't care, I'll help you shave your legs. <laughs> and she just did, and she was so lovely. And they were just, I remember after visiting hours ended in hospital, this was every day every single day um I'd message them and say okay what are you guys doing and they'd just go to the bar they'd um um they'd go get a gin and tonic um because near where they were staying there was an ivy they'd treat themselves to a gin and tonic and then they would go to um you know those food carts outside there's a really famous one in Oxford called Hassan's and they'd um my mom who I have on snapchat because I'm really sad would send me a selfie of her um, and there'd, it would obviously be surrounded by students because those are the only people that went and my parents would go and get a kebab um, and coleslaw and take it back to where they were staying. So that was their little tradition. And it always just made me laugh because they were just so funny. They would just get on with it and make sure I shaved my legs. <laughs> Moving on now, we are going to talk about invisible impacts. Now, with cancer treatment, we think a lot about the kind of visible impacts, the scars and, um, you know, the hair loss and whatever. But actually, there's so many invisible impacts. And one of the things that we want to do with Afterthoughts is shine a light on some of these invisible impacts. So, Deborah, I'm going to hand over to you to tell us a story around that theme. For me, the biggest invisible impact is how it affects your mental health. It is literally like someone takes a wrecking ball and smashes through any shred of um, mental stability that you have. Um, and I think a lot of, like you said, a lot of people don't really realize it because they sort of look at, um, you know, person going through chemotherapy, physically ill, person really ill after surgery, stem cell transplant, whatever. But no one thinks about the really lasting impact of it so I've had um I've had three surgeries um to my brain um one to remove a bone flap to deal with hydrocephalus and which is really weird when I think about it actually and um to to debulk and eventually remove the tumor and um the last two surgeries the second um tumor removing surgery and the bone flap removing surgery actually almost felt like chores. I was like, oh God, okay, here we go again. I'm going to be out of the game for a while. I have to deal with this. But the first, the first one, the one I spoke about earlier, um, the big, big boy 10 hour one. Oh my God, that was absolutely terrifying. Um, there's literally nothing more terrifying than knowing that um, you'll have brain surgery um, the next day. Um, so I remember when I first went into hospital, because I had hydrocephalus, they put a drain in my head. Um, that was definite. But then um, they were like, oh, we don't know when you'll have the surgery. Maybe it'll be next week. Maybe it'll be this week. Um, we'll see um, when your surgeon can slot you in. Um, and then 
they found out that it would be that week. It would be on Thursday in a couple of days. And um, a nurse came in and said, oh, your surgery will be this week. It'll be, it'll be on Thursday, yay. And I was like, oh, great, that's fantastic. Um, so I just spent the next few days just sort of having an extended breakdown um, because you know it's a completely new experience. You don't know how to prepare for it. I, was, um, I did the cardinal sin that no cancer patient should ever do and I Googled. Um, that is the absolute worst thing to do. That should be banned on the NHS. Um, Googling cancer should be blocked um, in hospitals, but I did it. I was absolutely terrified because results had come up for awake surgery, which I wasn't even having, but um, yeah, it's exactly what you think it is. Um, you're awake when someone's digging in your brain. And I was just thinking about that and I was so scared. And I remember on the way down to the operating theater, to get the general anesthetic administered. I was absolutely shaking. I was freezing. Um, I thought I was gonna be sick. Um, the, um, the head nurse like plopped a sick ball on my bed because I was just terrified. Um, and she was actually so nice, shout out to her. She was like, give her another blanket now. Um, but then it was fine, you know. Um, it was a big 10 hour surgery, felt like a blink for me shout out general anesthetic absolutely love that stuff um and um waking up was fine because i was absolutely off my nut um and i found out later on that as i was being put to sleep i was um telling the anesthetist how much i wanted an april spritz so obviously i wasn't feeling that sad and then recovery was was pretty chill um i remember my surgeon came um, and I said, oh, um, what would you advise for me to do in my recovery, like for my neck? And he was like, oh, I know this sounds cruel, but um, movement would be the best thing for your neck muscles. And I said, what if, what if, you know, my stitches pop or something? And he just, he just put his hand on my bed railing, looked me in the eye and said, Deborah, trust my stitches. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry. And then it was fine, you know, in hospital afterwards, it was fine. Like I said, the other surgeries, they felt like chores. Treatment, I had minimal side effects. It was fine. So I think people, because I didn't speak about, about it that much um, and be like, oh my God, this is awful. Um, people thought, okay, yeah, it's going well. But then when it all finished, whew, whew, it was like someone hit me with a truck. It was awful. This summer was basically just spent having an extended breakdown. Um, it, it's a delayed reaction and I wasn't aware of how common it was among cancer survivors that the trauma hits you not really during treatment um, or you know surgery because you're in you know survival mode you're full of adrenaline as soon as it all ends as soon as you've not got the um, support of seeing your oncologist frequently and being surrounded by nurses in a hospital it's really terrifying being in the real world and after the sort of more active breakdown finished, I've noticed that it's stuck around in other ways. <laughs> Every time someone <laughs> says the word head, I like start breathing a bit more heavily. Um, or we're about to head into the month of November and that was my diagnosis month. And I'm already feeling a bit jittery about it. Um, and it's just, I don't know. I have to laugh because if I didn't laugh, I'd cry how these little words can just affect you. It's so, you know, it's so odd. 
um, like in in my Spanish um, course, we study films, and in the films, some of the characters deal with cancer, and I don't, I've not even started yet. I don't even know how I'm gonna get through that. And I don't think people realize, um, you know, I'm not like angry about it because you don't really think about it, but I do think it's invisible and I want more people to know about how it can affect you after treatment. Because I know um, a tagline for this podcast or at least something you guys say a lot is, cancer doesn't end after treatment is over. And my God, <laughs> it really doesn't. I realize that, yeah. like we just don't talk about it enough like no no I didn't know about it I wish more people spoke about it and nurses warned you about it yeah I think so like part of me is like oh I wish they'd told me when I was diagnosed that basically I would be terrified for at least five years because I I was because of all of my all of my surgeries my treatment lasted longer than it it should have done but um I I feel like if they did tell you that people people would be jumping off bridges you know like I think it's almost better that they're like just figure it out yourself (laughs) because um but yeah like it's it's interesting because I think every storyteller that we've had on has referenced in some way whether directly or indirectly has referenced some kind of lingering trauma that they have from their cancer treatment and I know that Toby and I have both got them um and like my husband has really bad eczema and he uses a cream that I had to use on my skin when um, basically chemo made my skin break out into like red welts and it was horrendous. So all around my mm-hmm. eyes and on my hands and on my elbows and stuff, my skin was really bad. And whenever he uses that cream, I'm like, oh, well, is it the smell? Yeah, the smell. As it's soon always, as I it's smell always it, the smells. Yeah. As soon smells. as I smell it, I'm like, get out, like literally get yeah. out. <laughs> So our next section on Afterthoughts is a new one for this series, and it is the Teenage Kicks. Not the, it's just Teenage Kicks, but we'll go with it, it's fine. Uh, Teenage Kicks, and that's this is us trying to explore the differences that um, somebody who has gone through cancer um, might have had as a teenager compared to somebody who has not, and shining a light on those, those moments. So Deborah, we're going to go over to you for your story on Teenage Kicks. Yeah, um, I think um, something really cool, well, not cool because it's cancer, but, you know, cool, um, that I want to talk about is proton beam therapy. Um, It's not many people know about it. Um, It's, like I said, extremely cool, Um, quite modern, quite advanced. It's basically, now, forgive me if you know more than I do, when it comes to science, my brain switches off, so I know the basics. Um, but it's like radiotherapy, but more targeted. Um, so it doesn't affect. So what happens with radiotherapy is it goes to where the tumor is, but as it goes to where the tumor is, it goes through um, healthy cells. And as it exits where the tumor is at the exit point, it again goes through healthy cells. But with proton beam therapy um, is they can play around with the dosage. So it can be a low dose as it gets to the tumor, so it doesn't affect um, healthy cells as much. And when it gets to the tumor, it's the highest dose, and then it doesn't exit, it just, that's it. Um, so it's, wow, it's so cool, it's amazing. I want to shout to everyone about it. 
Um, not just because it's cool, but because there is only one active high dose center in the UK, Christian Manchester, amazing place. Another one being built in London. I don't know what COVID will do to that, but that's really cool. And um, for that, I did six and a half weeks in Manchester at the start of COVID. I distinctly remember on the car journey to Manchester um, for the first time reading articles about how COVID was at its worst in Manchester <laughs> and my heart just starting to beat a bit faster. Um, but that was, I think as far as cancer treatment goes, it was the easy mode, I guess, because it was just really calm. It's very nice, beautiful new building. Um, didn't really get to speak to the other patients much because, you know, Corona. Um, but we just sort of look at each other across the room and do that very British thing where you just go smile and nod. Um, so that was that was fine. But um, like I spoke about with um, with surgery um, earlier, the sort of effects don't really hit you until after after it ends. Um, and I'm talking about the mental effects because I didn't really have many side effects as such because of you know the nature of proton beam therapy is quite targeted. And I found that um, I couldn't really connect to people my age that much anymore. Because um, it's just, I don't know, I think a lot of um, cancer patients will face this whatever age they're at. It's quite hard to connect with people once you've dealt with your own mortality. You know, you're like, oh, how do I speak to you? And I found that it's not sort of out of me not caring. I feel quite bad about it. But when friends will talk about, oh, you know, can't go clubbing or can't do this, or I've got, you know, this teenager problem, it feels like there's sort of a wall separating you because you're like, oh, I don't know. You're like, oh, I've seen, I've seen another part of life. I've seen life-saving treatment. I've, you know, lain there with a mask over my head for six and a half weeks um so it just I don't know it's quite a double-sided thing because uh, you know on one side you're having this amazing treatment that's just you know feat of human achievement and you're like wow how you know I'm so lucky to be in a country that provides this for me but on the other side you sort of don't feel you don't feel like I don't know I felt like myself but you don't feel like you don't match the idea of what someone your age should be like you're kind of because teenagers are meant to be you know um a bit sillier a bit more disconnected from reality you know not really caring about much but um suddenly you know you're thinking about the things you've been forced to think about you know life and death and stuff so you can't really go back to that innocence, I guess. Moving on, we are now going to start shining a light on some of the lost conversations around cancer treatment. Um, People are talking about cancer much more than they used to, but there's still always ways that we can talk about it more. So, Deborah, over to you to hear a story about the lost conversations of cancer. Well, people are talking about cancer more, but not enough, I think, especially not young people and especially not women. Um, 
I don't think it's enough. Um, I know about this personally, quite passionate, because I spent a year um, getting told that I should check out mindfulness apps. Um, so if anyone ever recommends um, the Calm app to me ever again, I will hit them. Um, I spent a year with chronic neck pain um, that got increasingly worse. And I saw a couple of GPs said, oh, you're, you're young, you're a woman going through hormonal changes, you're anxious, shut up. Um, and then when I got to uni, the vomiting started as well. That's an absolutely classic um, brain tumor thing, by the way, vomiting plus um, pain in the upper area um, of your body. That's absolutely classic. Um, kind of mad at myself for not recognizing it, but you know, um, retrospect is a killer. Um, and I just got told lots and lots and lots of times, you're anxious, you're just stressed, um, try these breathing exercises, try going on long walks, um, try swimming in cold water. That's a thing in Scotland. Um, and it would just drive me crazy because I would be doing all these things, experiencing this intense neck pain that would wake me up, you know, multiple times a night. Um, by the end, before I got diagnosed, I wouldn't be able to walk down the street without having, without having to stop um, because of the pain. And it just makes me really angry because it happens so often to young people um, because you're young, you know, you can't possibly get cancer absolutely no way which first of all a bit rude to older people you know that they're expected to be ill you know chill out second of all it makes you think that you're indestructible as a young person it makes you think that nothing can ever go wrong um and that just makes me really angry and I think it is a bit worse if you're a young woman um and I've heard a lot recently about um women um, being discriminated against in medicine and sexism in medicine. Um, for example, it's a big thing with autism. A lot of women get misdiagnosed because the criteria are based on what men experience. Um, and I'm, I'm um, really pissed off that it happens with cancer as well um, because always with things like endometriosis as well, you know, your hormonal is natural. Your hormone always happens. Um, so I'm really passionate about people talking about um, how common misdiagnosis is um, and how, how for a lot of students, um, brain tumors are not, you know, are not found because you're a student, you're going to be stressed, you're going to get things like double vision, which I had, you're going to get headaches from studying a lot. Um, and I just really, really want people to not be scared to advocate for themselves. So um, I saw three doctors and two physios, three doctors, no, two of the doctors were here in Scotland and one doctor was in France because I was working as a nanny in France at the time, at the time that the neck pain started. And I remember that doctor in France, oh, I could give him a slap. Um, I came to see him and he just sort of looked at me and went, uh, neck pain, I'm not even gonna try and say it in French. Um, neck pain and I went yeah he didn't even bother to come and examine the back of my neck he said okay do this do this and a prescription for ibuprofen so that was great and then um I <laughs> oh no um I remember a couple of days before I was 
properly diagnosed, I went to see a physio because this this neck pain had gotten absolutely unbearable. Like I would, you know, lie on the ground in my uni room in pain. And he did his thing. And at the end of um, his, um, I probably shouldn't call it a massage because they do more than a massage. I really don't want to offend any physios because I do love them. At the end of his treatment, he said, he said, oh, that was great. If that doesn't cure your neck pain, I'm a bad physio. So the joke's on him because I had a brain tumor. Um, and then what happened was um, for two weeks leading up to my diagnosis, I had issues with balance and double vision because where um, my tumor was located at the back of my head, it, um, it does cause issues with balance. And because um, it was causing hydrocephalus, which created pressure in my, um, in my head, it literally felt like someone was squeezing it like that. It gave me double vision. So I woke up Monday morning and I had about, 10 seconds of just pitch black I couldn't see anything at all which is terrifying um so um I <laughs> so what did I do I went to my tutorial because I was really proud of the essay I'd written um talked about that during the tutorial I still had quite bad double vision so I went back to my room and I called my mum because that's what everyone does when they have a problem and I, I definitely downplayed how bad my symptoms were because my mum worries um, and she said, look, there's um, at the John Radcliffe in Oxford, there's an ophthalmology unit, an eye unit. So just, you know, call them, ask them what to do. And I said, OK, um, I called them. She did a sort of um, assessment over the phone, asked me to look in different directions and said, right, um, just, you know, make an emergency appointment with your spec savers. So it's like, oh, God, I was going to write an essay today, but OK. And at that point, looking back now, I realized that my symptoms were really bad. They were awful. But when you live with chronic conditions, you learn you learn to live with it. You know, you don't realize how bad it is. And I went to Specsavers and the Specsavers is um, in the center of Oxford. It's about five minutes away from my college. And I had to leave um, half an hour before because at that point, my balance issues and vision issues were so bad that you know and the roads around the center were, are quite busy so I just needed that extra time so I stumbled into the spec savers like sort of made my way upstairs she did the eye test and at the end of the eye test um she was quite quiet and that's when I knew she was like I'm just going to give you a letter just go to the go to the hospital you know um I've seen something about at the back of your eye it could be nothing um but just go and I just knew and all my friends were like oh it's fine it could be nothing it could be nothing but I don't know I had the sixth sense and I spent that day getting um getting scans and tests and that was when I found out um a funny story in the taxi ride on the way to the hospital I was crying on my best friend's lap and I was saying please god let this let this be nothing let this be nothing if it's nothing I'll become a nun and the taxi driver turned around and he was like you don't know what the nuns get up to <laughs> and I'll always remember that because that made me smile in the middle of my most intense breakdown ever so the last section of afterthoughts is an opportunity for us to look at the lighter side of uh, cancer experience we know that there are so many heavy moments uh, when you go through cancer but there are lighter moments and this is an opportunity to share those with our listeners so deborah it's over to you for the don't laugh section 
You know, this was actually um, the hardest section to prepare for because there's so many funny things that happen during cancer, but they're only funny to cancer patients because I think we develop such a weird twisted perspective on things. So there's stories that I've told, you know, the average layman that hasn't had cancer. And they just look at me like, oh my God, you need therapy. They're just <laughs> funny, you know? Um, but I think the one that I like the most is um, about my sort of stitches, staples that I had at the back of my head. So, um, like I said, my first two surgeries were down in Oxford. And afterwards, my surgeon likes for the stitches to be removed in the hospital that you had the surgery in. It's different for every surgeon, but um, that, was just, that was just his preference. So my mom and I had to, after my surgery, just sort of exist around Oxford for a couple of weeks. Um, and obviously existing around Oxford um, meant walking around with my hair up in the most disgusting, crusty, messy bun, because I couldn't wash my hair. Um, and with a sort of line of gauze all along here with, God, I can't even, it's like that big. I can't even imagine how many staples were in there. Um, 20 something. And just to um, make it even nicer, it had little patches of blood on the back mm. um, because as wounds do, it bled. Um, and I would just, you know, walk around, do my thing. We'd go shopping we'd you know go to museums and stuff it would be completely normal obviously not for everyone around us who saw that and my favorite moment is um my mom and I were at a pizza place because I was on steroids at the time and if you've been on steroids you're aware of the hunger you know exactly what I'm talking about and um I just wanted to fill my face with carbs and I I had my back facing the window and we were eating, eating, eating. And my mom just started laughing. And I said, oh, it's so funny. It's just pizza. And um, she said, no, people keep looking in the window um, as they do when they pass a restaurant to look at the food. And then she said, I can see them looking at your ghouls and staples and recoiling in horror. <laughs> 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 and I love that story because people were looking and thinking oh look at a lovely margarita and just seeing this disgusting <laughs> crusty hair shaved thing and staples digging into skin dried blood on the gauze oh my god I wish I could have seen their faces <laughs> I wonder how many people you put off coming into the restaurant. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I probably destroyed their business for the day. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh my I love that. I, I, um, I had drains for my mastectomy, not the same as like brain drains, but drains. Oh, and, I've seen those. Yeah. Yeah. You have them in like little bags that you put over your shoulder. And I just remember like anytime I went out and saw like a new person I'd be like you want to see my drains and they had like <laughs> plots floating around in them and it was like basically just really disgusting bloody liquid and I was like oh <laughs> yeah, look at my weird stuff I'd always get people to um poke my poke the bag with my brain fluid because I had the drain and it was attached to a um to a bag and it was cold and I was fascinated by this and when I got a visitor I'd be like poke it do it touch it touch it do it and they'd be so freaked out but I love it and I I have so many photos of it and I just it's so cool because who gets to sit there with their internal fluids beside them 
Right, I was exactly people. the same. Not enough people, that's you know? right, too. <laughs> oh, man. That was great. Love that. Great story. Um, so that brings us to the end of this episode of Afterthoughts. Deborah, thank you so, so, so much. Um, just some incredible stories, and it's amazing to have you on on with us. But thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, it's been thank fab. You. I have laughed a lot this afternoon. I don't know if that's just because I'm a bit hyperactive, but um, <laughs> yeah, just I've I've laughed a lot at some of your stories. Um, maybe that shows the dark humor of cancer patients more than ever. Oh, definitely. Also, I'm going to kiss to the world. Kiss the yeah, world. you've got to send out the good vibes. Oh, amazing. You can't kiss people in person, so you've got to. I love it. Thank you so much, Deborah. It's been an absolute treat to have you here. Thank you. It's been great to natter to someone because therapy is too expensive. So <laughs> it's good to talk about it with anyone that will listen to me. So. There was Deborah, um, Alice. And oh man, what a treat! What a treat! Um, I, I'm just having such a great time hearing and being inspired by these different stories that we're hearing from all our storytellers. And Deborah, just like, like, like I, I was really taken by these kind of moments of of humanity and kindness, mm. like talking mm-hmm. about her parents to the man delivering the mince pie. I just think. Uh, to, to the person in the proton beam who's like taking her through and stuff like that I just like so much humanity agreed and do you know what just to echo what you just said actually I get so annoyed when people say oh Alice is so inspirational I'm like I'm not inspirational I just didn't spontaneously combust when I had cancer but all week every storyteller we've sat down with I felt really inspired by and you know it's kind of hypocritical for me to say that but I just think yeah they've been so generous again um and yeah I loved 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 hearing Deborah's stories so tell me what your afterthoughts on the episode are my afterthoughts on uh, this episode of afterthoughts my, my main one is I thought having drains from my boob was bad can't imagine having drains from your brain Toby, what about you? What are your afterthoughts on this episode of Afterthoughts? For me, there was just this moment of talking about the uh, a culture of awareness and how important it is mm, for yeah. us to be aware of cancer and of what happens in treatment, but also what happens afterwards. And I really think that Deborah talked so much about that, of like not knowing the trauma that was going to come and just the importance of us talking about it so we're as prepared if we're going through treatment for the future but if we if we're post-treatment us understanding what we might be going through as well is shared by others and finding a way to get the support we need preach it it's all about reducing the stigma isn't it and you know talking is is a great way to do that um what so a great afternoon it. what a great afternoon and that's it for another episode of afterthoughts so we hope you enjoyed listening and um just to remind us alice there is still a hashtag isn't there uh hashtag dogs of afterthoughts can i just also offer if you want to send cats in because now we know that deborah likes cats i think that's fine hashtag cats of instagram no cats of- hashtag oh. cats of afterthoughts also very very welcome see you soon see you next time bye
If today's episode of Afterthoughts has brought up any thoughts or feelings that you'd like to speak to somebody about, we really recommend grabbing a cuppa with a friend or dropping them a message on WhatsApp. There are also tons of charities out there who can help you if you've been through cancer and need a bit of extra psychological support. Thanks so much to Teenage Cancer Trust for supporting Afterthoughts, the teenage years, and supporting teens and young adults diagnosed with cancer in the UK. The work they do is incredible. Find out more at teenagecancertrust.org. Afterthoughts is produced by Alice May Perkis and Toby Peach from Beyond Arts with sound design by Kieran Lucas.